Well, I've always enjoyed Christmas morning because I like to get gifts. Can I get a witness? But I've discovered that there's no joy like the joy of seeing Christmas morning through the eyes of your children. I remember years ago, probably about six years ago, when my oldest son was about three, we had Christmas with my parents in Florida. And my parents gave Cameron a Buzz Lightyear toy. And you got to understand, Cameron loved Buzz Lightyear. As a matter of fact, if I start thinking about it, I get a little misty-eyed thinking about Buzz Lightyear because he loved Buzz Lightyear so I mean, Buzz was a big part of our life for, for years. And, and he got this Buzz Lightyear toy that made sounds and lit up and all of this. And, and he, his eyes got big. And he, just, he, was, he was speechless with this Buzz Lightyear toy. But that wasn't all he got. After that, my dad brings in this motorized grandparents, okay? This motorized John Deere tractor thing and, and Cameron to look on his face. He didn't know how to handle another gift. I mean, not only did he get one great gift, he got two great gifts. And this morning, I want to talk to you about two great gifts that God gives us to walk through life to fulfill his calling for our lives. And we'll see these two gifts on display in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So turn there with me. 1 Samuel chapter 18, we'll begin reading in verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 18, begin reading in verse 1. If you're physically able this morning, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God? And let me just go on record as saying, I want you to hear me say this often as your pastor, I'm grateful for the Bible. Truth with no mixture of error, a rock we can build our lives and build our church upon. Grateful for the Word of God this morning. Boy, I don't know what I'd do without my Bible. How about you? You excited to be here this morning? I was walking uh, into the first service and I told uh, Kevin and Frank, I said, well, we're going to go see if we're in revival or not. You know, we had revival services last Sunday through Wednesday, but the true measure of revival, of revived hearts, is how it carries over in the weeks to come, right? So we're going to see if we're in revival or not today, if we uh, are on fire for the Lord. First Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, the Bible says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, this is David, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house, And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul sent him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let's pray together. Father. We come to you in Jesus' name, and we're so grateful, Lord, for your unfailing presence in our lives. Lord, we we believe that you're here right now in our midst. And Lord, we know that because of who you are, you want to do good things in our lives. You want to change us and mold us and make us further into the image of, of Christ. So Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would move in our midst. I pray that Holy Spirit of God, you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the timeless truths of Scripture. 
it is good to be here today with this faith family. And we expect you to do great and mighty things in our lives. All for your glory. Lord, I ask you to establish my steps in your word. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've journeyed through the book of 1 Samuel, we've seen that the Lord decided to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to a man after his own heart, a man named David, a young shepherd boy at the time that he was anointed to be the next king. And we saw that while God chose the next king, David, David was not yet functionally the king. There was still a time when Saul would reign as the king of Israel. This was David's preparation stage, if you will. And in chapter 17, we see a remarkable story that centers around how the Lord used David. If you remember, the Philistine army and the Israelite army were squared off to battle, and they never engaged in a conflict because a giant from the Philistines named Goliath would come out in the middle of the field and say, listen, you send out your best man to fight me. If I win, then you become our slaves. If, if you can send out a man that can beat me, we'll become your slaves. Well, no one wanted to fight the nine-foot, nine-inch giant. Until one day, David, a shepherd boy, comes to the front lines to bring his brother some supplies from their father. And he sees this giant defying the armies of the living God. And he says, listen, if no one else will fight him, I'll go fight him. And we know the story. The Bible says that David approached the Philistine. He took a sling and a stone. And with one, one turn of his, of his, of his wrist, the, the, the stone is released. It finds Goliath's forehead, Goliath crumples over dead. The Lord won a great victory through David, that we see the Lord's power on display through David's uh, life. And then we see a little bit of context at the end of chapter 17. Look what it says in chapter 17, verse 55. We didn't get to this last week, so let me just kind of review it with you quickly. It says, Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young Man And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. Now, this might seem like a confusing question because, if you remember over in chapter uh, 16, uh, Saul was told that there was a young man who was a gifted musician of the house of Jesse who could come and play music and sue the spirit. And so we saw in chapter 16 that, that Saul brings David into his household to play harp music to sue them when he was troubled by an evil spirit. So you say, well, wait, why would Saul not know who David was. Well, notice, it doesn't say that Saul doesn't know who David was. It just says he needs to be reminded who his father was. Remember, Saul had a lot of servants. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of servants. So it's very natural for Saul to say, hey, remind me who this guy's dad is, because I'm going to take him into my service, and we need to make sure that we let his dad know. We're conscripting him to service. So the king said in verse 56, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And look what it says in verse 2 of chapter 18. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Saul said, There's something special about you. God's hand is on you. You're going to serve me. You're going to be in my household. I'm going to use you to serve my kingdom. And that's how the story unfolds. Now, here in chapter 18, as the story progresses, we see God give David two great gifts because the Lord knew something David did not know. The Lord knew it would be years before David would actually become the king of Israel. 
And the Lord knew that David was going to walk down some very difficult roads on his way to the throne. He knew David was going through some very deep and dark valleys. And so in chapter 18, we see the Lord give David two great gifts that he would need on his difficult journey to fulfill God's purpose for his life. So wait, what are those two great gifts? Well, first of all, I want you to see the first great gift was a friend. A friend. God gave David a true friend because he would need one. Again, he was going down some very difficult paths, and he would need a true godly friend to encourage him and help him go in the right direction. He would need a true friend. Now, as we see David and Saul's son, Jonathan, enter into this friendship, we see several principles or characteristics emerge concerning what a true godly friendship looks like. And I want to give you just four characteristics of a true godly friendship. Number one, true godly friendships are supernatural. They're supernatural. Look what the Bible says there in verse 1. It came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Now that's a highly significant phrase. The soul of Jonathan was knit together with the soul of David. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Jonathan knit his soul together with David's. It says that his soul was knit together with David's. You see, the, the verb there is a nifal verb in the Hebrew language, which carries with it uh, the idea of a simple passive form. And a passive verb is used to speak of an object being acted upon by an outside force. So this is not Jonathan knitting his own soul to David's soul. This is an outside force taking Jonathan's soul and knitting it to David's soul. Who's the outside force? The outside force is the Lord. The Lord is doing something here supernatural. He takes Jonathan's soul and knits it together, makes it one with David's soul. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, by the way, if you have that version, translates verse 1 like this. It says that Jonathan committed himself to David. That's not an accurate translation. It, it misses the nuance of the nifal perfect. This is an, an object, his soul, Jonathan, being acted upon by an outside force. The, God, the, the Lord of the universe took Jonathan's soul and knit it together with David. There's something supernatural going on here. Now, we think about the supernatural, don't we? We think about, you know, miracles or mighty healings or outpourings of God's Spirit. We think about the supernatural in those terms. But we don't think about the supernatural when it comes to relationships, do we? But we need to understand that the supernatural is so important in our relationships. If we're going to have true godly relationships, if we're going to have true godly friendships, we need God to do something. We can't make that happen in our own strength and power. We're not good enough. We need God to do a knitting work with another soul. There's got to be that supernatural aspect if we're going to have true godly friendships. I like what A.W. Pink writes. He writes, there was occasion for Jonathan to look upon David as, as his rival and to be filled with jealousy and hatred against him. Instead, his heart is united unto him with a tender affection. This should not be attributed to the amiability of his character, but is to be ascribed unto him in whose hand are all our hearts and ways. 
other words, we shouldn't just look at this friendship and say, boy, Jonathan was a great guy, even though Jonathan did exhibit some great characteristics. We should look at this and say, God was doing something in Jonathan and doing something in David that was supernatural, and that's how you can, can, can explain a friendship like this. So true godly friendships are supernatural. Secondly, true godly friendships are selfless. Look what it says in verse 1. It says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. He loved David as he loved himself. He was selfless. He was willing to put David's needs, David's life ahead of his own. It wasn't all about Jonathan. It was about his love for his friend David. It was a selfless love, and true godly friendships are not self-centered. True godly friendships are selfless. They put the other ahead of themselves. Third, true godly friendships are committed. Committed, look what it says in verse 3. It says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Now that phrase, made a covenant, in the Hebrew language is, a, is literally, Jonathan cut a covenant with David. This goes back to a covenant ceremony that the Lord entered into with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. And here's what they would do to enter into covenants in that time. They would take some animals, and they would cut them in half. And then they would separate the, the two halves of the bodies of animals, and then they would walk in the middle of those carcasses. As if to say, if I don't keep my side of the bargain, if I don't keep my covenant, then I want to become like one of these animals. I want to be destroyed like these animals I'm walking through the midst of. It was a serious, serious deal. So when it says that, that Jonathan cut a covenant saying that Jonathan entered into a very serious commitment to be a friend to David, to be a companion to David. He was committed. And then fourth, true godly friendships are sacrificial. Look in verse 4. This is so interesting. It says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Now think about this. Jonathan's taking off not any robe. He's taking off the royal robe and giving it to David. He was the king's son. He was Saul's son. And he's not giving David just any weapons. He's giving David royal weapons. He was the king's son. I mean, according to how things were done in those times, when a king died, the son was next in line to take the throne. So what's happening here is a foreshadowing. This symbolic transfer of the royal robe and the royal weapons foreshadowed that David would be the next king. Now it's not clear here as to whether or not Jonathan knew that David had been anointed by God to be the next king. We don't know that. But there is some symbolism in him passing on the royal robe to David. And we do know that in chapter 23 verse 17 that Jonathan did know David would be the next king. So by 23, he did know it. We don't know if he knew it here, but he did come to the realization, I'm not going to be the next king. God has chosen for David to be the next king. Now that was a, a great opportunity for jealousy and selfishness, right? Jonathan could say, I'm a great warrior. Look over in chapter 14. Remember the story of Jonathan with his armor bearer climbing the scale and defeating the Philistines? Remember that? Jonathan, I'm a great warrior. I'm a good leader. I'm the next in line. But no, he understands that David is a friend. He's going to do whatever it takes to, to maintain his friendship with David, even if it means David will be the next king and he will not 
True godly friendships are sacrificial. Now, you and I need true godly friendships. We do. This is a real need in the lives of Christ followers today. And I want to give you just a couple of of word pictures to kind of plan in your mind to help you to think about true godly friendships. The first picture I want to give you is that of a foxhole. A foxhole. I read a great book uh, last year called Citizen Soldiers by Stephen Ambrose. This, this book detailed the battles that took place after D-Day up until the surrender of Germany in the European theater. Fascinating book about the Allied forces marching across Europe, closing in on Germany. And in one particular section of this book, Ambrose describes what life in a foxhole was like. He quotes a sergeant, Sergeant Egger, who said, I never observed any loners on the front lines. In other words, when you're in the front lines of battle, you need someone to watch your back. You need some encouragement. You need some protection. You need some help on the front lines of battle. So when you get on the front lines, there's no loners up there. You're looking for a friend. You're looking for some help. And Ambrose goes on to describe Foxholes like this. He, he writes, Foxhole buddies developed a closeness unknown to all others. Their trust in and knowledge of each other was total. They got to know each other's life stories. Without thinking about it, they would share their last bite or last drink of water or a blanket, and they would die for one another. Foxhole. Can I just remind you what we talked about last Sunday morning? We are in a war. Right? We're in a war. And if we understand that, then we ought to start looking for some foxhole buddies. Someone to be our friend, to watch our back, to encourage us in the midst of the war. We need some folks in our foxhole, amen? We need some true, godly friends. So when you think about war, when you think about a foxhole, think about your need and my need for true godly friends but let me give you another word picture think of a refrigerator wait what does a refrigerator have to do with true godly friendships well this past week our guest preacher for the revival john avant was speaking to our staff it was on monday morning he's talking about staff relationships how staff need to be close to one another and here's what he said and this this phrase st- stuck with me he said your your staff with each other you need, you need to have refrigerator rights I think, what are refrigerator rights? Here's what he said. He said, when a staff member walks in your house, they ought to be able to go to your refrigerator and grab something for themselves, and, and it wouldn't be weird. Right? And so we need friendships with refrigerator rights. Where we're so close to each other that we can walk in each other's home, go to the refrigerator, help ourselves. No one thinks it's weird, right? We need those kind of friends. Friends that we are so close to They have refrigerator rights. If we go to their house, they have refrigerator rights. I want people in my life that can come to my house and just go to the refrigerator, and I don't think it's strange, and they don't think it's strange. They can help themselves to anything except my Girl Scout cookies. Anything. Refrigerator rights. Let me ask you a question. I know that's kind of a funny picture, but do you have someone in your life that has refrigerator rights in, in your life? You that close with somebody? They're like family? Do you have those 
foxhole buddies? Do you have some true godly friendships? Because you need them. You need them. So let me give you just two little statements of application. This isn't in your notes. Just to jot this down. Number one, if you have a true godly friend, and by the way, I was reading Chuck Swindoll the other day. He said, you'll be fortunate to have three in your total life, your entire life. Three friends like this. If you have a true godly friend, cultivate that relationship. Work on it. Ask God to do a supernatural work in your life and a supernatural work in their life so that you can grow closer and closer to one another and be there for one another and encourage one another and help one another. Invest in the friendship. Cultivate it. You haven't talked to them in a while, call them up. Go drink coffee. Go get a bite to eat. But cultivate that friendship. Don't take that friendship for granted because there are people who are desperate for friends like that. You don't have a friend. If you have a friend that's a godly friend, cultivate that friendship. Here's the second word of application. If you don't have a friend like that, if you don't have a Jonathan in your life, ask God to give you a Jonathan. Pray about it. God, would you give me a true godly friend? Would you give me a foxhole buddy? Would you give me someone that has refrigerator rights in my life? I believe that kind of request honors God. God, I need, a, I need a Jonathan. Would you give me one? Would you provide that need in my life? Would you do something supernatural and direct me to the right person and direct that person to me so there's no mistaking it is God at work in our relationship? The first gift that God gave David for the difficult days that were ahead was the gift of a friend, a true godly friend here's the second gift that the lord gives david he gives him the gift of favor favor what is favor favor is the state of being approved or being held in high regard it's uh, it's obvious in this passage that the lord holds david in high regard He, he he's approving of his life because he is he is blessing him in such significant ways so wait how do we see favor in david's life well we see The Lord gave David favor with others. Favor with others. Verse 1, Jonathan's soul is knit to David. He has favor with Jonathan. Look in verse 5. It says, so David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he prospered. And Saul sent him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So all the people of Israel, the servants of Saul, they liked David. They thought, man, there's something about this guy. He had favor with the people of Israel. He had favor with, with, with all of Israel and Judah. Verse 16, it says, all Israel and Judah loved David. He went out and came in before them. Look in verse 28. He had favor with Saul's daughter, Michael. It says in verse 28 that Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Everybody you look at, except for Saul, everybody loves David. Jonathan loves David. Michael loves David, his daughter, Saul's daughter. The people love David. All Israel and Judah love David. They think this guy is great. Why? The Lord was giving David favor with all the people. Now, this is very important for us to consider. Because I believe we should ask the Lord to grant us favor with others. So that we can influence them for Christ. Let me say it again. I believe we should ask the Lord to grant us favor with others so that we can influence them for Christ. You ever heard someone say, I don't care what people think about me. 
I don't care what they think. I'm just, I just am who I am. I don't care what people think. That's a, that is a short-sighted statement. What if God gave you favor with others so that they cared about what you thought and would hear you out when you talk so that you can point them to Jesus? Over in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the New Testament church is being described, and it says in verse 47 that they were having favor with all the people. I mean, the people in Jerusalem knew there was something special about this group of people that were followers of the way, followers of Christ, and they were more apt to hear them out because they liked them. I think it's appropriate to say, Lord, give me favor with other people. Give me favor with folks in my workplace. Give me favor with folks in my family. Give me favor with others so I can be an influencer in their life. Secondly, the Lord gave David the favor of success. The Lord gave David favor by granting him success. Look in verse 5. David went out and wherever Saul sent him, he prospered, it says. Look Look in verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. The Lord was with David. Look in verse 14. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. Look in verse 28. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Look in verse 30. It says, then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. Whatever David did was blessed by God. Why? The Lord was with him. Wouldn't it be amazing if one day people are sharing at your funeral service and they say, I don't know if I can really explain it or define it, but The Lord was with them. The Lord's hand was upon their life. Don't you want that for your life? I I like what Moses said over in the book of Exodus. He said, Lord, if if you don't go with us, we don't want to leave. We don't want to take one step into the wilderness if you don't go with us. We need you. We need your presence. We need your hand upon our lives. And the Lord gave David favor by granting him success. Third, The Lord gave David the favor of protection. He protected his life. You see, David lived with the favor of the Lord. Saul lived under the judgment of the Lord. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand, and as usual, as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. And here's what's happening. An evil spirit, the Bible says, from God came upon Saul. Now, what in the world's going on there? Second time we've seen this. How does an evil spirit come from God who is good all the time? What's that look like? Here's what it looks like. It means that the Lord took his hand upon, off of Saul's life. And he allowed this evil spirit to come against Saul, to torment Saul, as an act of judgment. This is God's judgment on King Saul. David had the favor of God. Saul was living under God's judgment because of his foolish past decisions. You see, Saul had walked away from God, and thus he became a spiteful, jealous, vengeful person. I wanted to show you very quickly the progression of of Saul's hatred for David. 
It's there in your notes. It starts with jealousy. Look in verse 6. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying, displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And so we see here that Saul is jealous of David's success. And can I, can I just tell you this? Everybody look at me for a moment. Jealousy will destroy you. It'll destroy you. It, it ate Saul up. And can I just tell you what I observe where I see jealousy rearing its ugly head in our, in our church culture? Facebook. Facebook. Oh, this person gets to go on vacation. This person has a perfect life. This person does this and that, and I don't have that. And look at them. They're, and, and, we, and, we're, and we're following these people around, looking at their pictures, looking at their posts. Look at me, folks. No one ever posts anything bad on Facebook, usually. You know, he sees someone post on Facebook, we were up all night with a stomach bug. Right? It's all birthday parties and vacations and this and that and how great my life is. Listen, could it be we're not telling the whole story on Facebook? But we're letting that kind of stuff eat us alive. And we're jealous. Instead of, instead of cheering for other people, we're thinking, I want what they have. Eating us alive, folks, it is. Jealousy. And the jealousy led to suspicion. Look in verse 9. Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. He was suspicious of David. Verse 12, the suspicion led to fear. It says, now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. He was, he was in fear of David. Verse 15, this fear led to dread. Verse 15, it says, when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. I mean, David was a, a, a good man, a, a, a valiant warrior, a, a worshiper of God. God's hand was on him, and all Saul could do was dread David. And the dread led to great fear. Look in verse 29. Starting in verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. You see the slippery slope of jealousy? Jealousy leads to suspicion, suspicion of fear, fear to dread, dread to great fear. So how does Saul act out upon his jealousy toward David? Two ways. Number one, Saul tried to kill David with an impulsive assault. An impulsive assault. Verse 10, the evil spirit comes upon Saul. Verse 11, it says, Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence how many times? How many times? Twice. So here's what happened. Saul threw the spear, missed him, went back and got the spear and threw it again. Now, I'm asking the question, why didn't David just leave? When someone's throwing a spear at you, it's obvious they don't want you around, right? Why didn't he leave? Well, I believe that Saul, or I'm sorry, David, knew that Saul was deranged, but didn't think that Saul was malicious. He knew he was troubled by an evil spirit, but he didn't really think Saul was, was evil or malicious, but Saul was evil and malicious, driven by his jealousy. So Saul tried to kill David with an impulsive assault. But God protected David twice. Next, Saul tried to kill David by giving him an impossible task. An impossible task. In verse 17 through 30, we see this story. You can read it when you have time. 
Saul has his daughter Merab, and remember, David was told when he went to fight Goliath, if, hey, if you kill Goliath, Saul will give you his oldest daughter, Merab. But it ends up that Saul gives Merab to somebody else. I don't know if it's just in spite towards David. We don't know what happened there, but he does not give David his oldest daughter. Well, come to find out, Saul's other daughter, Michael, really loves David. And she's crazy about him. And David seems interested in Michael. So Saul thinks, well, here's my opportunity. Here, I, can, I can capitalize on this. Here's what Saul does. Saul gets word to David, listen, if you really want the king's daughter, you need to go kill 100 Philistines. So what does David do? He goes and kills 200. <laughs> Saul thought, if he'll go and engage 100 Philistines, surely they'll kill him in battle. Surely he can't best 100 Philistines. But the Lord protected him in the midst of that impossible task. His favor was on David's life. And David killed 200 Philistines, came back and said, okay, I've killed 200. And then Saul gives David his daughter. So we see that the Lord gave David the favor of protection. He watched over his life. And there are going to be chapters and chapters coming up where the Lord just keeps protecting David in the midst of the fierce onslaught of Saul. Listen to me. We're going to see in the coming days that Saul uses all the resources of his kingdom to hunt David down and kill him. But God keeps protecting David. So if you see the favor of God, everything David does is successful. David is blessed with favor with others. The favor of success. He's being protected by God. God's hand is upon him. Now here's my question for all of us to consider this morning. Is the favor of God something we can seek after? I mean, is there anything we can do to position ourselves for the favor of God? Well, I believe the answer is yes. Because remember what it says over in chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said, I've chosen a man after my own heart. In other words, his favor was directed towards the man whose heart was on fire for God. So I do believe there are some things we can do to position ourselves for God's favor in our lives. So here's the question. How do you seek God's favor? Let me give you four quick answers to that question, then we'll be through. Four quick answers. Number one, you ask for it. <laughs> ask for it. Turn over to Psalm chapter 90 with me. I love Psalm 90. It's the Psalm of Moses where he talks about the, the fleeting nature of life. And look what Moses says in Psalm 90, verse 17. Moses writes, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm, establish the work of our hands. Moses, listen, life is short. In the midst of this brief life, we need God's favor if, if what we're going to do has lasting results. Ask for it. Turn over to Malachi chapter 1. Last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. Look in verse 9. The Lord speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Malachi. It says in verse 9, But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? Ask God for his favor. We need God as a nation. So ask him, nation of Israel. I mean, how much more practical does it get than that? If you want God's favor in your life, ask him for it. Number two. Obey God's commandments. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. 
Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. Proverbs 3, verse 1. Very important passage of Scripture here. Verse 1, the Bible says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good reputation in the sight of God and man. In other words, if you want God's favor, keep His commandments. Why would God cause His hand to rest upon a disobedient life? Why would God pour out His favor on disobedience? It'd be like if you asked your son or daughter, I want you to do such and such, and they say, no, I'm not going to do it, and will you go get me a milkshake? Doesn't work out like that, does it? And why would we expect God to pour out His favor to give us success when we are living in disobedience? If you want God's favor, obey God's commandments. Third, acquire wisdom. Look in Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Wonderful chapter where wisdom is personified, and we see wisdom speaking here. It's a a poetic device to get a point across. And in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 35, it says, For he who finds me, wisdom, for he who finds me, finds life, and obtains, what? Favor from the Lord. When we live according to God's wisdom, when we seek God's wisdom and apply it to our lives, we find God's favor in that. He blesses a wise life. He does not bless a foolish life. He does not bless foolish decisions. He blesses a wise, godly life. And then last, how do you see God's favor? Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Look over in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 27. The Bible says, he who diligently seeks good, seeks favor. There it is again. But he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. Look in chapter 12, verse 2. A good man will obtain, what? Favor from the Lord. But he will condemn a man who devises evil. If you want to have God's favor, be a good man. Be a good woman. Do the right thing. Live a godly life, and God will bless that life with his favor. So let me give you a summary statement of all we've talked about. Kind of sum up chapter 18. To pursue God's purpose for our lives, we need a godly friend. And we need God's favor. To pursue God's purpose for our lives, which will often lead through very difficult valleys, we need a godly friend, and we need, a, we need God's favor. The Lord knew what David was about to encounter. So the Lord gives David those two great gifts to prepare him for the journey that lied ahead. So, a good friend, a true godly friend in favor. We all need it. Can I just tell you this as we close? There has to be a starting point. There has to be a starting point. In other words, you can't expect these two gifts from God until you're God's child. And you only become God's child when you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 
know, we talked about needing friends and cultivating friendships and asking for a friend if we don't have one, and that's all very, very important. But can I just remind you of this in the meantime? We have a great friend in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. We are friends of God. So the starting point for, for, for life that is blessed by God, uh, uh, the starting point for life where God's hand rests upon your life is to embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's where you begin to pursue God's purpose for your life. 